thank you for listening to The Path to Authenticity. My name's Tom Gentry. I think of this show as the opposite of small talk. You'll hear real conversations with real people who know who they are. We talk about what makes them who they are, how they became who they are, and how we might become truer expressions of who we are. I'm Saul Malik, and this is The Path to Authenticity. first time here thanks for checking it out if not thanks for coming back i'm tom gentry and this is the path to authenticity episode 221 for august 10th 2023 features a conversation with a guy named saul malik who is a recovering gambling addict uh student in a master's program at Southern Methodist University and a gambling addiction advocate connected with him on LinkedIn, had a chance to have a conversation with him for the podcast, had an episode earlier this week and then re-released an episode last week, but Before that, it had been a few weeks since I released a new episode, and just want to let you guys know I'm kind of going to put a pause on this podcast. I have a few more episodes in production that I want to get wrapped up in the next few weeks and get out to you guys, and I have some other things I'm working on. So I'm going to hit pause here with the path to authenticity in the next month or so, and I'm sure it'll be back at some point, and I have other podcast content that will be coming out on this feed, but I'm just working on some other things, and uh, if you've missed the show, I appreciate it, and uh, got plenty more to come, so hope you enjoy this one with Saul. So here you go, Saul Malik. coming man i appreciate you doing this yeah absolutely i was really grateful to see your uh, response on linkedin and you know your effort to make this happen well as i was telling you before um this is a topic that i've i feel like i've really wanted to address on the podcast and part of it is because just sort of where i am in my life right now i'm I'm consuming more sports on TV than I have for a long time. And, uh, you know, I grew up in Indiana and, uh, moved back about a year ago and, uh, and I'm, I'm happy to be, you know, that's kind of what you do in Indiana, you know, 
Um, so I'm a Pacers fan. I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. I'm, I'm not a big NFL guy. If I, you know, I'll follow the Colts when they're good. More Notre Dame football, Indiana University basketball. But so it's, it's been really great to be home and to have all that stuff in my local market and to watch it all the time. And I'm, I've, it's just, uh, I've noticed it's really remarkable to me how many ads I'm seeing for sports books, DraftKings, MGM. I mean, there are just tons of them. And it's not only with sports, uh, it's, it's, it's all over the map. If, and there's so many famous spokespersons now, Jamie Foxx, Kevin Garnett. I mean, I'm sure you can name a lot more than I can, but as someone who I'm, I'm a recovering alcoholic, um, come from a 12 step background, have, uh, had many friends over the years who, even if gambling wasn't their primary compulsion, mm -hmm. a lot of times it was a secondary one. And I've just seen a lot of people get in trouble with that and other process addictions. And for me, it really, it, it, it worries me because what I assume is going to happen, but you know, I, I, I hope not, but in my lifetime, what I've seen happen with pornography has been pretty astounding, you know, with the advent of the internet and especially the smartphone, we just have constant access to pornography where when I was a little kid, there were like theaters where you paid a quarter to watch porn for 30 seconds. And, and it was like a big deal to have a playboy or a penthouse magazine. And, and really my first exposure was more like a video cassette where you picture three teenage boys in a living room, one staring out the front door, making sure, Mom's not pulling in the driveway where, you know, it was really, really hard to access. And now you just have it immediate access to it in your hand all the time. And the result of that that I've seen is as someone who works with a lot of guys, especially. I don't know a lot of guys who aren't using porn all the time. Mm hmm. I mean, even if they don't want to be addicted to porn and it, and it's really insidious, it's, it's happening constantly. There are a lot of people who use pornography all the time. And so when I see all these ads and I see all these promotions where, you know, you bet five bucks, you get credit for 250 or whatever. And, and we're just inundated with all these ads and, to me, what it really is, is just another opportunity for distraction as if we don't already have enough. And so I fear where this is going to go, you know, 
And, uh, and you know, I know guys who make an occasional bet. I mean, I've, I've met those guys, know a lot more guys who've run their lives into the ground, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, absolutely. I just, uh, I'm curious to hear about you, what brings you to a place in your life where you're taking a position of advocacy in this area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's for me, what I think stands out about what you said leading into this question that is so uh, thought provoking to me is that when I started with all this sports betting back in 2017 as a sophomore in college, it was something that I didn't really have a lot of, you know, prior knowledge of what it, what I was getting into. And a lot of my friends weren't really doing it. The ones who did it were doing it so infrequently. It was never really a topic of conversation. And when it really came out to my family and friends and so on of the level I was doing it and, and, you know, always on a different sports book and so on. I mean, it was seen as repulsive behavior that, you know, was a problem and, you know, ab abnormal and so on. And, now that I'm seeing this stuff on the scale that, that I am, um, it's honestly at times infuriating to think that a lot of young people, young men especially, are being led to believe that they should be doing all this stuff, that if they're not, they're not true sports fans or, you know, they're, you know, not enjoying the game, they don't have skin in the game and so on. And so it's like this action that, leads to can lead to all this destruction and you know debt and broken relationships and so on it's now being pushed to where you know when i've made mention that it could be destructive and so on i met with comments a lot of oh you're such a debbie downer or, oh we know who lost their parlay last night haha -ha, like that sort of thing and um that's really been my my main motivation is that I know where it took me. And of course, I'm my own person. Everyone has their own, you know, experiences with different activities and so on. But I know the potential of where this is going. And it just seems like it's falling on deaf ears a lot of the time. And so I think, hey, if I can at least make an effort to get people at least looking at this topic, even if change is five or 10 years away, really, I mean, at least start that conversation because I, I really can foresee where this is going. Hey folks, Tom here. I want to take a moment to ask you to subscribe to my Substack publication. The original purpose for creating this podcast was to cultivate an audience for my writing. And I'm publishing now more than ever. I'm sharing free content every week with commentary on personal growth, emotional literacy, men's issues, relationships, and more, as well as audio content for paid subscribers. Please check it out by clicking the link in the show notes or by visiting tgentry at substack.com. So how did it play out with you? It started when you were a sophomore in college. How bad did it get? And then how did you stop? Yeah, so that was really my first experience betting on sports games. I mean, I did fantasy baseball leagues with my friends since sixth grade onward. It was a social thing. It actually was how I made a lot of my friendships in middle school. 
through high school was we had our St. John's School Fantasy League. And so I did that. I actually dabbled in DraftKings my senior year of high school. Um, and I'd make lineups on hockey and golf and fight like UFC fights. And I knew nothing about any of it, but it was just a way to pass the time. Although once I got off to college as a freshman, I, I deleted the app because I wanted to focus on school and I wasn't addicted to it or anything. I got rid of it and just kind of didn't think about it. So that was really how I guess my sports involvement started. But with the actual sports betting piece, um, as a sophomore in college, I was texted by an acquaintance of mine from, I went to a summer program uh, at Marist College in New York for like sports broadcasting. And um, I helped one of the guys there with his fantasy baseball lineups all the time. And he messaged me and said, oh, you know, I found a bookie to bet sports on. And I know you're really good at fantasy baseball. So you know, why don't you hop on this sports book with me and we'll have fun and it'll be great. And what's crazy is I remember thinking at the time, and I, I vividly remember where I was and everything. It was a Wednesday, September 20th, 2017. And I remember at first thinking, oh, you know, that's maybe not like, you know, I don't want to lose my money. I mean, a very rational thought of, you know, eh, maybe not for me, but I, I figured, okay, well, I kind of talked to myself a little, thought about it and said, well, you know, what the heck? I'll put in 10 bucks on a baseball game tonight that I, I'm pretty certain about. And um, that was how it started, which I think, you know, people don't realize how innocent it is at the start. I mean, it was as if someone asked me, hey, do you want to go to the movies? And I had no real opinion and just said, uh, oh, what the hell? I'll go. Sure. And didn't think twice. So I made this bet on this baseball game. And I remember it was like the most absurd thing because, you know, most baseball games are at least one or two run game into like the fifth inning or whatever. Um, but this particular game where I took the Royals to beat the Blue Jays, my team was already ahead nine, nothing in the second inning. So it gave me this belief that I really do know what I'm doing. You know, this was an easy win from the very start. And, you know, I'm, I'm a pro at, at this, I should do it again. And so that was my first bet that day, that baseball game. And because it won and the guy actually paid me, over Venmo and I collected my money. I thought, wow, this is insane. You know, this is cool. It's great. I felt so powerful, like this feeling I'd never felt before being in control, having power felt like what I'd think a CEO feels like. And so I took that and then bet on football that weekend and won a huge underdog then. And so that really told me, well, I need to do more of this. I need to figure out how I can do more. And I got onto an online account on a sports book shortly thereafter, because at that point I was just telling the guy my bet and he would place it or whatever. And we'd Venmo each other or he'd Venmo me after the bet finished. But I really just got, got into it, um, kind of in, in that way. Like I won my first couple bets and I thought, you know, I love sports. I love money. I don't like working. And this is an easy way to make money really quickly doing something I enjoy doing. And it makes me feel super powerful. Like now I feel better than all these guys in my fraternity, all my friends who are working hard at school and they're going to be doctors and lawyers and so on. Like you guys are losers because I can make all that money, the click of a button, you know, just sitting back, relaxing and so on. And so 
really, it, it just kind of progressed from there. And I, I don't think it's the best use of my time to go into every single bet and so on and what happened here and there. But I really eventually just got to a point where I wasn't able to pay off my losses because I was starting to get higher and higher amounts of credit because I wanted to gamble higher and higher amounts because I didn't get that same rush from a $10 bet, a $15 bet, you know, I'd want to do more and more and more. And so eventually, you know, I got to the point where I wasn't able to pay some of these guys. And so I would start blocking phone numbers of bookies and getting a new bookie. I don't know if I need to explain the context of what that is for people listening, but you know, like a bookmaker, someone who takes your bets, they'll give you credit to place bets. And at the end of the week, depending on how much you're ahead or behind, you'll you'll exchange payment with that person. And so I was bouncing back and forth between all these people that I was owing money to, blocking numbers, finding new people through, you know, various connections, lying to them about my income so I could get credit and then not paying and then you know, having to block calls and try to change my phone number and all sorts of stuff. And so I think the last part of your question, because I know there's a lot to talk about, so I'll speed it up here. But I think you'd asked about what made me stop or how it got to like the worst point. Yeah, both those things. How, how bad did it get? And how did you stop? You know, what I think a lot of people can resonate with in terms of quantifying how bad it was, I think is financial. I think that's really an objective measure of the damage someone's done. So, I mean, I would estimate I lost about twenty to $25,000. And this is all money I didn't have as a college student. And I'm still paying it back. Almost four years later, I'm still making payments on, on that money that I owe all these different people. So there was a financial aspect of it where it all came to this point of just owing all this money. But say at my lowest point in 2019, I mean, my clean date in the program is July 18th of 2019. But in August of that year, um, the girl I was dating at the time at, at school um, had found out that I was not only gambling, I was also like cheating on her at the time. So I was gambling, doing all this stuff. And so it was a culmination of all my behavior, like the gambling mixed in with all this other stuff that she broke up with me and I thought, well, I don't have any money. You know, my friendships are all severed because no one wants to talk to me and I don't even want to talk to them because I want to gamble all the time. And now I don't have a girlfriend, don't have any money. You know, I really have nothing and I still have this compulsion to gamble. So it's like, damn, nothing in my life is giving me any hope. And so I had a mentor that um, I knew from some of these 12 step meetings that I'd actually been attending. I just hadn't gotten clean, but I had this mentor who I reached out to and said, you know, well, this girl just broke up with me. If I can go clean from gambling for the next six months, will you tell her that I've changed and tell her to, you know, take me back and everything? And he sat me down and had this conversation that there was no chance that I'd be able to achieve any sort of abstinence or long-term sobriety or anything if I didn't work on changing myself and that I was very stubborn and running out of hope and that I was pretty much in a life or death situation because emotionally I was just so bankrupt and um, very confused as well. I mean, my mind was just so out of sorts that every decision I was making was based on fear or, you know, some impulse or compulsion. And 
Um, that was really the lowest point was, you know, actually a month after I had stopped placing bets, but I was still, as they say, often in 12 step rooms, a dry drunk. So I just hadn't found a bookie. I didn't have any credit. I wasn't gambling, but my life was still deteriorating more and more. And so I think that was really the point where I realized I actually, no exaggeration was on the route to uh, an early death because as my sponsor says, you know, when people run out of hope, then that's when they eventually will stop living. Because if I don't have any, if I know I'm not getting any better, then why am I just living a miserable life day after day and it's getting worse? So that was really it. It was all the emotional stuff and the finances and the everything. Wow. So um, just out of curiosity, so you have abstained from gambling since then and you've mentioned a few times 12 step involvement mm-hmm. um so to you um are you also abstinent from mind altering substances i don't use well depends if you'd say alcohol is a drug because i i would say i drink in a social capacity i don't use drugs though if you're if you're saying alcohol is not a drug but I, I drink from time to time but nothing that i would say is is a way to escape or or do anything like you know try to replace my addiction but yeah 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 that's that's all i would say on that well you know to me i mean the way you described gambling is what my relationship with alcohol was like Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, over the years I've gambled a little bit here and there, you know, nickel slots, that kind of, you know, <laughs> but I also know I've done it enough to feel a little taste of what you're talking about feeling when you made that first bet and won yeah. the power of that and, uh, and how intoxicating it feels. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm more, first of all, I don't, you know, I don't want to risk money that way. So, so that's right. kept me from doing it. But I, I also know I don't, I don't see myself as a compulsive gambler, but if I gambled yeah, I could see it happening, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to be mindful of on my end as well with, with anything, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it's like, um, as someone who's been sober for a long time, people have asked me, you know, how did you feel about having a son? And do you fear he is an alcoholic, like the genetic thing? And, and what I've always said about that and what I believe about that is I want him to be able to, um, have a healthy relationship with his emotions. Mm-hmm. And which he does. And, you know, I know for me, the alcohol wasn't the problem. You know, it was the solution for the problem. Right. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, who knows what would have happened if, if that never existed. But, but I, if I had coping skills, I wouldn't have looked to deal with my emotions and I I wouldn't have had that compulsion to escape myself the way that I 
the way that I did. And so to me, that's really what it's about. Like, I'm not here to say whether or not you should drink. If you're not, you know, if it's not creating unmanageability in your life, then, you know, but I know, uh, for me, you know, I, I probably shouldn't gamble. <laughs> right. Right. No, it's a good, very good point because I'll just say quickly that, um, I, that's why I think the whole abstinence date, at least for me, is not so important. I mean, it is important, but I could say, oh, I'm, you know, four years, almost four years clean and then from gambling. But like, what if, you know, what if I'm going home and always drinking or, you know, being right. rude to people and, and so on? So, you know, it's not the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, you know, I'm assuming since, you know, you've, you've are working or have worked the steps, which, um, to me is that's the real silver lining to all this stuff, right? We find our way to that, which for me, it gave me a way of life that I didn't mm -hmm. have before. It gave me, um, you know, the, the most recent podcast, episode that I released was about stoicism and, and the guy who I interviewed, that's sort of his life philosophy, you know? Well, I studied philosophy. I grew up in a religious home, you know, but what I could never really figure out was how this stuff applied to me, especially the philosophical ideas, you know, but the 12 steps, those were really practical. You know, I could apply those principles to my life immediately and begin to see results of feeling better about myself, feeling better about my relationships, being able to function more effectively in relationships. It just, it just helped immediately, you know? Yeah, it's, it's definitely, I mean, my work on the 12 steps, I'm, about to go over step seven with my sponsor and i know it's taken me quite a while and there were patches where i just wasn't doing my step writing and just kind of cruising along but i've been back in the habit of ch talking to my sponsor every two or three days and you know going over the writing and so on because that is really what keeps me moving forward it's it's not about just not gambling like you know dealing with adversity that comes up because that definitely still comes up. It's just, you know, how can I handle it in a way that's constructive and mature and doesn't just, you know, it's not self-destructive. Yeah. And I know for me, I needed, and I was 23 when I went through all this. So I don't know. How old were you in 2017? What are we? Oh yeah. When I started sports betting in 2017 i was 19 uh almost 20 so i'm 25 now okay so same age range i mean yeah. i needed something to really sink my teeth into in life i needed something to be grounded in and i think one of the benefits that maybe we don't think about as often I definitely have over the years is I needed healthy guys who were mm. doing that kind of stuff with who were trying to be better people, you know, who were actually trying to be good men. Mm -hmm. And I got that in recovery. I got that in recovery. I met guys who were talking about their emotions, 
and talking about what was going on with them and, and actually really trying to be good men. Yeah. I mean, I, I can totally see the importance of, of that because I've also had the experience of not really that I associated with people placing sports bets, but going out and drinking and driving and like, Oh, well you're less drunk. So, you know, you should drive or whatever, things like that. Just, uh, encouraging each other to do risky behaviors and justifying it to make it like, Oh, we're not doing anything wrong. But there have people, there have been people that I've talked to where I have tried to pass something by them and they say, Hey, wait a minute, you know, that's doesn't sound very healthy or whatever. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, I'm actually really glad to have these honest relationships. Well, my assumption is that you feel a sense of responsibility to tell your story yeah, to have it be heard. And that's why we're talking, right? Definitely. I mean, I think that the more people that hear this and it doesn't even have to be, I mean, it's doesn't have to be about me. It's really just the character of me, you know, any generic male of this demographic that has this issue can relate hopefully and maybe get something out of it. Where do you live? Where and you're in school. Where where are you? I'm in school at Southern Methodist University doing my master's in clinical mental health counseling. So it's a three year program and um I'm about to enter the practicum sequence. So there's a semester of that and then two semesters of doing an internship off campus at an internship site. And once I get all those hours, then I can hopefully, you know, pass the counseling exam and get that license. So have you looked into where you're going to be doing your internship yet? Yeah, I'm actually considering because there's there's a place where I'm already working as a patient care assistant where I, you know, oversee some of the groups there. It's it's an outpatient, intensive outpatient and PHP, you know, partial hospitalization. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a mixture of that. It's a program for um, middle and high schoolers that have a variety of mental health issues. And so I've been working there part time now. And and they said that, you know, it seems quite likely I'd be able to intern there when I'm looking for internship sites. I haven't fully committed to that yet. And they haven't extended me that offer, but it seems like it would be possible to work there, intern there. Well, if if you want to look at other options, I don't know a ton of people in that area, but I know, I mean, one guy comes to mind in particular who I could talk to who could, you know, point you in the right direction. I mean, to really find a great fit for you, he might be able to, to help if, if this doesn't, you know, if it seems like maybe there could be something that would be a little better. I mean, if you're in the 12 step community in Texas, you know that there's a really rich 12 step history in Texas and, uh, and there's a really rich treatment history in Texas too. Mm-hmm. There is like, uh, right. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard the name Ebby Thatcher. Yeah. Yeah. I've <laughs> heard that. See one of the original guys. In well, the- well, if you if you read the Alcoholics Anonymous literature and, you know, Bill's story and Bill Wilson being the kind of the first co-founder of AA, 
there was a guy who showed up at his house who, while he was still drinking, who, you know, um, who he had been friends with for many, many years and drank with. And that was Ebby Thatcher, who eventually became a sober guy in AA and ended up being, I think, the first AA member in Texas. Yeah. I didn't know he was from Texas. I'd heard the name before though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was a Texan. But um yeah, there there's some uh great facilities out there and um yeah, like I said, a really rich history of good, solid twelve step based addiction treatment out there. Yeah, and uh but you know, um in my experience, gambling addiction is such a specialty that you know, I mean, to me, it would be desirable to have an intern who wanted to specialize in that. I would think so, too. Sure. You probably don't get too many people that are really directly interested in that. Well, and, you know, now is probably a really good time to becoming to be becoming a licensed mental health counselor who specializes in gambling addiction. I think you're probably going to have plenty of work in the next 10 years, you know? Oh yeah. Without question. Yeah. So, um, what was this like for your family to experience? It was pretty devastating. I mean, I, I would often hear from my brother. He would, well, he would text me sometimes and just, you know, check up on me and so on and say, it was really destroying my parents. I mean, First of all, and this is really, I think, the least of what their concern was, was the financial aspect. I mean, they were coming to my aid pretty often until I really decided to stop. They were coming and giving me bailouts, and um, they felt that that was easier for me to pay them back than pay some bookie who was coming after me. So they would just give me the money to do that. Um, But I mean, I I think the biggest issue that it brought to the family was they, they couldn't trust me for anything. And I know, especially with my mom, who's always been really vocal, I guess, in her support of me, whether it's been with teachers throughout middle school where I'd get in trouble and she would be my advocate and, you know, she would, I guess, discipline fairly, but she'd always look out for me. And so, not having a relationship with me that was honest was really, I'm sure, really, really devastating. And um, it was just awkward to, I mean, awkward doesn't even really capture what I'm trying to convey because um, it was just this really icky feeling of whenever I'd go home to visit, knowing I'd gambled again or I was lying about something and I just any moment I could, I'd try to get out of being in the house because I just like couldn't look at my parents and I just felt really uncomfortable being around them. And, um, you know, there was no way to really enjoy family time because even if I was with them and we were talking about something else, I'd have my mind occupied about getting the money to pay someone or, you know, getting on another sports book or whatever. And so, yeah, I mean, they were worried for sure about my safety as well because, they didn't know who any of these bookies were that were needing their money from me. And I'm sure they also didn't know if I was going to end up like harming myself physically or something, or just having like a stress heart attack or I mean, who knows. Mm-hmm. So 
really. I mean, the effect, which is sort of crazy to me, but it seems true that you could have a gambling problem without ever gambling in your life because your family member's problem has become your problem. Right. And that's what I think is not reported too often about this whole gambling epidemic that's that's taking place is that families are going to suffer. It's not just going to be some kid who loses a couple hundred bucks and then, yeah. oh, well, you know, really. Well, you know, over the last few years, I mean, I have people who are more or less close to me, who I've known all my life, who have come to me to talk about their kids. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and by the time it happened, by the time they were willing to have a conversation about it, man, they had already bailed their kids out many, many, many times were themselves at the end of their rope financially and finally at a point where they realized, man, we can't do this. Like we need help. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so there's, you know, I mean, it is an addiction and, and like other addictions, there's a lot of shame about it. So it's not only the shame that you have for, for becoming this person who lives this way and this, this dishonest way, which is, you know, you're talking about how you can live with yourself, not being authentic with your family. Um, they then, you know, they're afraid to talk to other people because they probably on some level even assume there's something they could have done better or else this never mm-hmm. would have happened, you know, and, and the shame about, bailing you out financially when most of the advice they're going to get is to never do that. Right. No, right. That's yeah. Especially I think given the background that my parents have and tried to raise me and, you know, going through private school. And then also my parents, I mean, my family is a uh, Jewish and even though we're not really religious, I think there is a certain level of expectation with a lot of these Jewish families where, everyone's a lawyer, a doctor, this or that, successful. It's like you can't go telling them, oh, my, my son just sits at home, gambles, and takes our money right. for bailouts. Like there's so much shame, I would think, yeah. associated with that. Like, damn, we spent all this money to put him through private school, and he's amounting to nothing. Mm, man. Well, that tells me a little bit about how you felt about yourself. Yeah. Through this process. That's a pretty harsh thing to say, you know, Uh, but I get it. Um, Mm -hmm. But I just as an aside, I have to ask. Yeah. How did a Jewish kid named Saul Malik end up at Southern (laughs) Methodist University? (laughs) That's funny you say that because I guess all of the schools I've been to since sixth grade would would seem to be Christian. Like I went to St. John's sixth grade through 12th and then Trinity in San Antonio and now Southern Methodist. And I think really it's just that these are all schools that I've considered to be good schools. And I think SMU has at least regionally has a pretty good reputation and a lot of good networking. So they, they do actually have a Jewish student like Hillel group at SMU. They had it at Trinity as well. And then St. John's, we had a few Jewish kids. So I think it's really more about the prestige than anything. Did you grow up in San Antonio? No, I grew up in Houston and then just just went to Trinity for 
undergrad. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So you've been in Texas your whole life. Yeah, actually, it's that is true. I just moved around the uh, some of the major cities. I, I haven't lived in Austin to this point, but Dallas, San Antonio, and Houston. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been in, been to San Antonio and I've been to the Dallas airport. I've been to Austin a number of times, and uh, what I, I've I've liked it. You know, I mean, do you see yourself staying in Texas, or what do you envision? I, I wouldn't mind it. I mean, I'm currently, I, I have a girlfriend, a different girlfriend now of almost three years, and um, she's looking into different law school options. So I'm, I'm prepared to follow her, assuming, you know, once I get my license, I'm able to kind of be flexible with where I go. So I like Texas, but I'm definitely open to kind of traveling around. Well, you know, there's... uh there's work, this kind of work everywhere, you know? I'm sure that's what I was thinking. It's probably a pretty flexible situation. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I will tell you in my experience is uh, there, when it comes to addiction treatment, there is a, a pretty vast difference between treatment and good treatment. Mm-hmm. And one of the, I mean, one of the things I'm really grateful for is I had an older sister who 12-stepped me. And she happened to live in a community where there was a Hazelden program. Oh, okay. So she went through that program and a year later I did. And then I started my career there, trained as a counselor there. So I, I got the best, you know, I really couldn't have, it couldn't have worked out any better in terms of how I was positioned to enter the field and be trained. Um, and yeah, I mean, there is a really, really big difference between treatment and good treatment. And so, you know, if there's ever anything I can do to help you in terms of steering you, I mean, I can say with a pretty high degree of confidence that if there's a facility that you want to know if it's any good or not, or if the people there are good or not, if, if I don't know, I can find somebody who does. And, uh, and what really matters more than anything else is the quality of the people who you align yourself with. And, uh, like I said, I just, I just kind of got really, really lucky, um, to be not only, um, sort of groomed and trained by people who were not only professionally sound, well-trained, you know, um, high level of professionalism, but they were also very ethical people who were doing the work for the right reasons. You know, they sure. really, really wanted to help people. They weren't, they weren't doing it to acquire wealth, <laughs> which, mm-hmm. you know, becomes a problem because as you know, if you're someone who's studying to be a mental health counselor, you know, the lens through which you see every, 
every decision you make as it pertains to your relationship with the client, the client has to come first. What's best for the client always has to come first. And if there's ever anything that gets in the way of, of that, it is more or less problematic always, you know? Sure. And I, I think especially, you know, in this field, it's so um, murky at times, I'd say, between good intentions and then also just, you know, getting rich quick or something. Because I think there are there is a lot of potential to offer some sort of miracle cure to people. And people are so desperate because they're suffering so much that they'll try it because they're, you know, willing to try anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's, I don't know, I wrote something a few years ago about like, uh, three or four questions that a family member should ask when they're talking to someone in an admissions department at a facility. And, you know, one of them is how are you funded? Like, Mm-hmm. Like, is it a for-profit or is it a non-profit? And, and usually those things are pretty telling. Mm-hmm. Not always, but most of the really stellar historically treatment facilities around the country were non-profits. And it's becoming less, uh, less true over time because there are more good facilities. But they're still, most of them, even if they are for-profit entities, they're not um, the source of of the wealth that the owners, you know what I mean? They're a, they're, yeah. they're a labor of love, you know? All the really great facilities that are out there were created because somebody wanted to help people and they had passion for it and they had a really good idea about how to do it you know but but um there are an awful lot of people out there who i don't know i just feel like this isn't something that we should be doing to get rich you know i just Mm -hmm. like like you said people are at their a lot of times the people that we work with are at their worst when we meet them, the families are at their most vulnerable. They're, they're dying for help and they don't know what to do. And what's always saddened me is if they consult Google and, you know, and you Google best addiction treatment, like the, the, what ranks up to, you're not going to get it. Like it's not, that's not, you know, you'll, and, and you could get anybody on the phone and, and uh, and their agenda is to convince you to come there, not to help you get the best help for you. And so I've always really taken that seriously, that my job is to help people get to where they need to go, not where I want them to go, right? Not what suits me. So anyway, just, just to re anything I can do, I'm more than happy to help you. It's good to. I I feel like I have a responsibility to do that when I meet younger people who are trying to do the right thing. And you know, if there's something I can do, I want to be able to help. I want, I want to help people 
um, connect with other good people and that sort of thing. There's a facility down there uh, that I've referred to a lot over the years in South Padre Island um, origins. And uh, okay. yeah, and there's um, I, I know that they have an outpatient program in Dallas. Um, and then there's some great care around Houston, too. Like really cutting edge stuff. The Meninger Clinic is there. Ah, yeah, I am familiar with that one. Yeah, yeah, and there's also uh, Jay Flowers Institute, which is you know this Doctor James Flowers, who's really brilliant. And but that's just scratching the surface. I mean, there's a lot of good treatment out there. So anyway, well, so looking back on all this. You know, there must have been a time when you were at a particularly low point and, you know, things didn't look like they were going to work out too well. When when would that have been the when things were really at their worst for you? And when was that? What was going on? And what would you go back and say to the younger Saul? I would say, I mean, the specific day I actually remember because um, I remember where I was. It was August 14th of 2019. <laughs> I was at my 12-step meeting and um, I remember walking in and angrily yelling about how this girl I was talking to or I was with like ratted me out to my girlfriend at the time that, you know, I was going behind her back and all this and then I got broken up with and I'm going to go like get revenge on, on the girl who told on me and so on. And I remember being told like to um, like, you know, sit down and be quiet and so on. And then I got a text from my like girlfriend at the time from her dad that I need to call him. And I said, Oh, I'm at this meeting. And he said, no, you need to call me now. And so I remember talking to him on the phone and he was yelling at me and so on. And I was pretty overwhelmed. And I remember going to a gas station and just getting like a 40 ounce like alcohol malt liquor and a four loco. And I remember just drinking from both of them, just like sitting in my car crying and thinking, you know, everything is such a mess. I hate this, you know, there's nothing to live for. And, um, I think I reached out to my parents or they somehow heard from like the girl's parents or something. And my mom offered to come get me. And I said, no, I would just, you know, sober up and go back into the meeting. And, uh, man, I just, I just remember thinking, you know, like it just kind of hit me. Like, how did I, how did I end up here? Because it wasn't really anything I had consciously planned out. And I know from a young age, I was never someone who was concerned I was going to use drugs because none of my family did. None of my friends were like, I mean, some of them smoke weed, but no one was using like hard drugs that I knew of and it just didn't concern me really. And so to end up being this person in, in this awful condition, it just was an emotional avalanche there to uh, have that all pile up on me there. And so I think that's really the moment I can think of back August of 2019 where I realized how bad it all was. But I, th I think at this point, you know, that, could have been the best night because it stopped me from where I was. And I don't think that I'd have any sort of direction 
or purpose without going through this, the program I'm in and these experiences, because even before I was really into sports betting, I was just sort of aimlessly going through getting my undergrad degree and I was getting a communication degree and I thought, oh, I want to be a sports broadcaster, but didn't really want to take the initiative to try to network and make my way up the rankings with that. And I don't know. I mean, just didn't have much purpose. So I think it's one of those things where I just look back and say, of course, I'm not done with this journey. And um, I, I believe that I have this chronic addiction. And if I go on my phone right now and start gambling, then it'll put me back into this destruction. But for now, I'm good, you know, and I think that it's it's good to be able to celebrate that without getting complacent. Yeah. Well, I'm happy for you because I know having had a sort of similar experience um, with the different addiction that it's like what I know now looking back is that I was living in like if uh, if I want to use the television meta- metaphor, it was black and white, and now I'm living in color. And it just the the ability to have um, the the relationship with myself that comes with this kind of healing. My quality of life is much better than it ever would have been. Mm-hmm. Had I not gone through that. And so, although, you know, obviously what got you uh, to the point where a change like this was necessary is tragic. Mm-hmm. This is what happens in life, right? You know, the, this is this is how we figure out who we are as human beings. You know, we go through trials and we grow through it, hopefully. You know, and become better people. So good for you, man. Thank you. Yeah, it's definitely been an, been a real weird, weird ride, but it's it's been it's been a good journey. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to do this, Saul. Thanks a lot. And uh, you know, we have to definitely stay in touch. And if there's oh, anything, yeah, I can absolutely. Do I was planning to. Thanks for listening to the show. Please subscribe, leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can learn more about my other podcasts by visiting thepathtoauthenticity.com or by clicking the link in the show notes. Music is by the band Punk Rock Opera, used under a Creative Commons license and with permission from the artist. The show is produced by me, Tom Gentry. You can find more of my work on Substack, including a podcast only available to paid subscribers. So again, 
Thanks for listening. Keep coming back. Be nice. Be nice.